to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Bullock, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, resilience, business continuity, emergency management, COVID, well-being, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road for sponsoring today's show. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. As many of you know, uh, over the year, the last five-plus years of doing this show, you know I love to read. And a little while back, I came across a book uh, called Managing for Resilience. And it's edited by Monique Crane. So thank you, Monique. And there's a lot of great essays uh, in here. And one, almost, I think it was the second one that caught my attention almost immediately. And it is called The Right Stuff, Employee Characteristics That Promote Resilience. And I'd like to welcome to the show today one of the co-authors of that article, Dr. Robert Sinclair. Dr. Sinclair, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm real happy to be here. And I think it's always interesting to get a chance to talk about resilience-related research. Well, I could tell this is this is how prepared Dr. Sinclair is. He even sent me a paper uh, for, for some more background information, which I'm sure we'll probably reference a couple of times here, too, which lots of great information in the paper as well, not just the article. Now, I know uh, we've touched base and I've gone through your, your bio and everything, but could you take a minute or two and just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got into what you do? Sure. So um, I'm currently a professor of industrial organizational psychology at Clemson University in uh, South Carolina. My area of research is called occupational health psychology. So I study um really anything about how the workplace affects employee health. And primarily what I pay the most attention to is um, topics related to economic stress. So this is issues like money and job insecurity and how they they create stress for employees. Um, Creating healthy climates at work, which is about sort of employees' perceptions about their, um, whether their company prioritizes health and safety issues. And then um, kind of a grab bag of other topics that I would just call sort of high-risk occupations. And that's been some work, um, some research consulting with the military. Uh, that's been some research in healthcare, both with emergency medicine physicians and nurses, and kind of a variety of other occupations that have some kind of risk associated with them. And that work um, kind of led me to the, the resilience work, I think was really um, getting interested in some work with the United States Army where they were interested in a characteristic called hardiness, uh, which we'll, maybe we can get into a little bit more later, but essentially a personality characteristic that they thought they could promote in military personnel that would help them deal with combat stressors and without becoming a stress casualty. Um, so 
that's kind of the, the shorter term, and I won't give you my full life story, but the, the longer term version of it is that I, I did my PhD at um, Wayne State University, which is in Detroit, Michigan. And there, there was a heavy um, organized labor presence and many academics and other people that were doing organized labor research. And so really my interest in occupational health stemmed from uh, being around a lot of people at that university who were interested in how working conditions affect employee health and, health and well-being. And so that, that's kind of led me down this career. And so resilience is one of these topics we get into on the on the person side about kind of what person characteristics affect occupational health. And then there's a whole series of other things that we talk about in terms of environmental conditions that affect employee safety, health, and well-being. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show as I said, when I read the just the title, I knew oh, this is going to be an interesting essay. You know, employee, the exact title: Employee Characteristics That Promote Resilience. Right. In, in business continuity and operational resilience and organizational resilience and all these other different groups that are out there talking, they're all focusing on resilience so much. So my first question to you is: How do you define resilience? Good. So this is um, that paper that you show. This is a paper that um, it's main colleagues, Winnie Shen and, and Tom Britt, who's a colleague of mine here at Clemson and I. Um, so Tom and I have written a few different things on this kind of idea of the definition of resilience. And, you know, as we were talking before the show started, it's, it's a challenge in this literature because it's one of these terms that um, I sometimes tell my students that they're called quicksand terms, that different people use the term meaning something different. And, uh, you know, so that what you what one person means by resilience, somebody else might mean something completely different. And and there, you know, that's there may be legitimate different uses of the term. I think it's important to acknowledge that. But what we talk about when we define resilience are really two distinct ideas. Um, one is called the demonstration of resilience. And this comes from work by a, a psychologist named George Bonanno who talks about re resilience as a trajectory of health outcomes following exposure to a stressor. And so that kind of the short answer to it is that resilience is basically maintaining your kind of baseline health and well-being after exposure to a stressor versus something like getting sick and having symptoms in the short term and then recovering or you know getting sick and never recovering. Um, so we talk about resilience as kind of maintaining functioning in the face of adversity. Um, then what my chapter was more about was the second part of the definition where we talk about the capacity for resilience. And these are the individual qualities that uh, people have that can lead them to be better able to demonstrate resilience when they're exposed to stressors so that they're not really resilience per se, that they're characteristics that we possess that lead us to potentially be more likely to be resilient. Um, and there's no one set of those and kind of like, that, that chapter was basically an attempt to say that specifically in the area of personality characteristics, um, here's a variety of different traits that we think are um, associated with the, the ability to essentially cope with stressors better. Um, but other people would point out that it's not just personality characteristics. So some people think about personality, uh, think about resilience as some part of your personality, right? It's who you are as a person, your character. And that's true to a degree, but other people have pointed out that characteristics like physical fitness, your overall health, social support can contribute to resilience as well. 
Uh, but sort of the main focus of that chapter was on the personality characteristics that promote resilience. Personality, uh, people tend to change their personality. So you de depending on things they've gone through, they're experiencing, um, you know, they may live out in the country and all of a sudden their personality changes when they move to a big city. You know, so does that mean a person can change their, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, their level of resilience? Yes. Um, so that in the broader personality literature, I think we define personalities relatively stable characteristics, you know, that are there are things that aren't really aren't going to change unless something happens to change them. And there's a lot of research that's it's quite interesting looking at um, personality over time and finding that, you know, if I surveyed 50 people on their personality characteristics now and came back seven years later and looked at the same characteristics, they'd be pretty stable. You know, so these are characteristics that don't change that much, I think, unless something happens. And I think part of the appeal, for example, for the military with looking at hardiness was that that literature assumes to a degree that those characteristics can be developed in people with the right types of training, with the right types of supports. And so we talk about them as relatively stable, but changeable. You know, so you're not going to just, you know, as I say, you're not going to be an extrovert today and sort of randomly become an introvert tomorrow, you know, and you probably won't change in your level of extroversion unless something really quite dramatic happened to you. But it's possible that characteristics can change or develop over time. Absolutely. Now, you also mentioned stressors. What, what do you mean by stressors? Good. So, I mean, generally speaking, we talk about stressors as any stimuli that places a, a demand on your system and requires you to cope with it. Right. And I'm particularly in the area of resilience, they're often interested in talking about traumatic stressors, which are, you know, associated with PTSD and, and depression and other negative mental health outcomes. I should say post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and other negative mental health outcomes. And there, those are stressors that people would define as outside the range of normal human experience. So combat is a classic one, um, a tornado lands on your town. Uh, being, you know, domestic abuse, you know, things that are really outside of our normal ability to cope. And then the interest in resilience is that we know that when people are exposed to those stressors, maybe, you know, there's not an exact number because it depends a lot on the circumstances, but somewhere around 20, 30% of people may develop PTSD as a result. And then a lot of other people won't, right? Some people develop, you know, short-term problems that they can get over pretty quickly. Some people uh, seem to do quite well. They demonstrate that resilience trajectory. And then it's not in my area of research as much, but there's a whole other area called post-traumatic growth, which is the idea of being exposed to trauma, helping people grow as a person. You know, so I remember mm -hmm. I went to a conference on cancer survivorship one time, and they would talk about people that said that, you know, my cancer taught me what I was capable of as a person. You know, I, I didn't know how resilient I was. I didn't know what I was capable of dealing with until I had to deal with the stressor. And soldiers in the military, you know, obviously not all of them, but many of them will talk about um, the meaningfulness of their deployment and how they, they learned about themselves and what they were capable of and actually derived benefits from it. So there are a variety of these different responses that we have to stressors. And, you know, our interest in personality and resilience is, you know, what are the personality characteristics that might explain why somebody has 
one response versus another. Is it fair to say you cannot say you're resilient or someone else resilient if they haven't gone through some sort of a stressor? Because I know some people, I've met one or two people in my life where it seems everything is just absolutely fantastic and, you know, they're resilient. They call themselves resilient. You know, they've never had any issues. But then based on just listening to you, it's like, well, are they really resilient if they've never experienced anything traumatic? Right. So this goes back to the definition, right? So if you talk about the definition and you say it's how you respond following a stressor, you know, by that definition, you wouldn't know until they've been in a stressful circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the capacity definition, then you can say, you know, yes, this person has these certain capacities and that leads us to think that they're probably going to be resilient if they're exposed to a stressor. But we wouldn't put it as like a stamp on the person that says that this person is resilient and this other person isn't, you know. But I think you could say that, you know, this person has these characteristics that make them more likely to be able to cope successfully with stressors. Um, The other thing I'd say about it is that um, there's a researcher named Siri, I I forget the first name, but who argued that, you know, I think as, as we all might expect that you need some level of exposure to trauma to grow optimally as a person. You know, if you've never encountered trauma, you're probably going to face difficulties when you do. You know, so I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's part of that answer too. I, I'm curious because you you were talking of you know, different characteristics for individuals and how that can and uh, and may not, you know, depending on the situation, help with a person's ability to be resilient. And if each person is different, why do some organizations and their leadership then say we're resilient if everybody is different? How can you say you're resilient, you're a resilient organization or whatever the case may be when everyone is different and you're not going to know what everybody is like? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think that I think one part of it is that there's a levels of analysis issue where, you know, the, some people use the term resilience to talk about organizations and but that you the general meaning is the same, you know, to what extent can an organization deal with crisis or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then psychologists are talking about resilience in terms of a person characteristic or, or a set of characteristics. And, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, I think psychology is really somewhere between the everybody is different, unique, special snowflake, you know, and then everybody is all the same, right? That I think the way that we think about most things in psychology is that there are sets of characteristics that um, are common to most people. Um, I'll try not to give you my 45 minute personality lecture on this, but um, <laughs> you know, there's some characteristics that we think are sort of common to all human beings, right? An example would be what we call the law of effects, which is that um, <clears throat> we, tend to do things that we get rewarded for, we tend not to do things that we get punished for. That's basically a human characteristic. Um, then there's sets of personality characteristics that are um, they're common to all people in that we all have some level of them. A good example is extroversion, right? So you can characterize people as somewhere on a spectrum of extroversion to introversion, and everybody falls somewhere on that spectrum. You know, but there's certainly it's not that everybody is completely unique in their extroversion, right? That you may be just as extroverted as these three other people over here. Um, And, you know, so I think maybe you might say that 
different people have different combinations of, of qualities, right? But there's, I think, common themes in, in personality in terms of the, the characteristics that we focus on in describing people. Um, then I think the other part of it is that psychology, when we study individual differences, whether it's with resilience or some other topic, um, at a research level, we're, we're looking at groups of people rather than a person, right? So if I say that emotional stability as a personality characteristic is associated with um, better coping with stress, which, which there's all kinds of research that would show that. It's not a controversial statement. Um, what I'm saying is that statistically, on average, people who tend to be higher in emotional stability also tend to be better able to deal with stressors, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't speak to any one particular person within you know, a research study. It's kind of in a, in a probabilistic sense on people as a whole, how, how does an emotionally stable person deal with stressors compared to a, a more kind of neurotic individual? So, you know, we're really talking, making statements about groups of people as a whole. Um, for an organization that's using, a, for example, using personality tests to hire people, if they were doing that, um, they would basically be doing it based on kind of a probability expectation that people that score higher on this test in general are going to be better able to cope with the situations that they face at work in general. You know, and I think that's the way we, we would talk about it in industrial psychology, rather than you know, saying that everybody in this organization is resilient all the time. Right? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I've been seeing more and more of that lately, people taking a personality uh, type tests as uh, trying to get a new role. Yet I've always struggled myself wondering, but some people just get nervous on tests and don't do well, period. It doesn't matter if they're an introvert, extrovert, smart smarter than you know someone else or <laughs> when it comes to a test it doesn't truly reflect who they are as a person so i I've, and, and i think that's part of the same thing when it comes to resilience well using you and i as an example we could have the exact same situation and you will respond better than i will but in another situation i respond better than you so who's resilient who's not right that's 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 a tricky one um, let me let me talk about the first part first, because sure. I was just lecturing in my undergraduate class about this this morning. Um, anytime we study something in psychology, we basically we're trying to capture these, you know, abstract ideas that we call constructs. Right. And um, where then we use measures that we, we can actually get a score on from a person, you know, response to a personality questionnaire. And so what I talked to my students about this morning was that that response that a person gives is going to be a function both of the target, whatever you're trying to capture, and some of those measurement factors. You know, like you mentioned, test anxiety is a classic one. Um, you know, the, the, the research question is a question of degree. So it's not either it's a good test or it captures test anxiety. It's in general, how much does test anxiety influence somebody's responses versus their actual standing on that construct. And, um, you know, that's a whole research literature that depends on, you know, different measures do a better job of establishing that. Some are very good and, and have a lot of evidence to support them. Some are maybe more questionable. Um, so it's very much an answer that differs depending on, you know, what you're testing. And then the question about different circumstances, yeah, I think is spot on in the sense that 
Um, I think that people may be more apt to, you know, be adaptive in one situation and not others, right? I think that's absolutely true. Um, and the study of personality characteristics and resilience, we're kind of saying in general, so that, you know, across a variety of situations, if you have this characteristic, you're going to probably do better, right? Um, but it doesn't guarantee, I don't think they say it with the level of certainty that says in every situation that you might face, you're going to, you know, that Bob is going to outperform Alex because, you know, Alex probably has some other characteristics that enable him to perform well in certain situations, you know, mm -hmm. like experience, right? You're going to be much better on a podcast because you've been doing it a lot more and a lot longer <laughs> than I have, right? So, you know, because you have those skills that are um, conducive to that situation, you're probably going to be more resilient in that situation or somebody else might not be. You got me thinking, does there need to be a personal connection to a situation like the impact to determine if I would uh, respond a certain way or be resilient in a certain situation? You know, if, if something touches me deeply on a personal level, will determine, help determine how I... Yeah. So certainly there's, I think, a fundamental idea in stress is that um, what we call identity relevant stressors. Uh, so that if it's an event that's demanding and also it's kind of a threat to who you are as a person, you know, that's going to be much more stressful for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it may also be the case that, you know, and we also talk about the idea of meaning these days, meaning and purpose. Right. And that if you find meaning and purpose in events, I think you're going to be better able to cope with them. So that certainly there's a, a component of, you know, how you perceive an event is going to be different than I do. And, you know, that's going to guide, you know, your stress response. So. Great. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking today with Dr. Robert Sinclair and his essay that appeared in the book, Managing for Resilience, Employee Characteristics that Promote Resilience. And we will be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Challenges in the workplace and within teams are only increasing as companies struggle to transition to a post-COVID-19 remote work situation. These unstable times have stretched companies and their leaders beyond their capacity, and they do not know how to maintain a balance of authority, empathy, compassion, and assertiveness toward their coworkers, much less continue their own career trajectory. Leading with Intention with Monique Dagneau offers support, encouragement, and tools to help corporate leaders address their personal shortcomings and emerge from these unprecedented times as well-rounded, self-assured leaders. Leading with Intention, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you cultivate braver, more daring leaders? And how do you embed the value of courage in your culture? How do you take charge of your life and achieve your goals and bring about positive changes that propel you forward? On The Leader's Edge, join your hosts, Steve and Ernie, as they bring a mix of insights in personal and leadership growth that shapes your culture and the culture around you. Lean in and learn intentionally how to accelerate into your next best life. Tune into The Leader's Edge with Ernalita DeCumos and Steve Steele, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 
on the Voice America Business Channel. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. listening to preparing for the unexpected with alex bullock email your questions to info at stone-road.com again that's info at stone-road.com now back to preparing for the unexpected welcome back today we are talking with dr robert sinclair co-author of the article employee characteristics to promote resilience um, that was found in the book managing for resilience uh, Dr. Sinclair, great first segment, lots of uh, good information there. Uh, part of what you write about, you talk about a model called power. And I'm wondering if you could define that. What is the power model? Sure. Um, the power model is, uh, I had to think of a catchy acronym in case I ever try to go in business and make money with some of the stuff, which <laughs> I'll probably never get around to. But I always envisioned a book called Harnessing Your Personal Power, I write about. But um so if you remember, I talked about the two different approaches to defining resilience, where I said there's a demonstration approach and a capacity approach. And then the capacity approach looks at different kinds of personal qualities that people might have that might lead them to be more resilient. Um, what I, as a researcher, looking at that literature, what you'll find is that there's all sorts of different research approaches to studying these personality characteristics. And you know, one researcher might say that, well, resilience is characteristics A, B, and C. Uh, you know, another researcher might come along and say that it's characteristics B, D, and F. And, you know, a third one might say it's, well, it's F, G, and also part of B, you know. So um, what I was interested in writing about for that chapter was trying to identify what I saw as kind of cross-cutting themes across some of the different personality models that people have used. So I wouldn't call it a formal theory per se, but more of a set of here are some themes in the personal qualities that people study that are related to resilience. And so the power acronym, the P stands for purpose. Um, so that purpose in this model is kind of a dispositional sense of being able to find meaning in your life. Um, that, that this comes mostly from literature on a characteristic called hardiness where they talk about people being engaged in their life and that they they wake up every day and they feel like they've got you know meaningful stuff to do. And um, kind of the opposite of it is people who feel like life is sort of pointless and they're kind of disconnected from people around them. So the hardiness researchers see that in part as a trait, that some people are just better able to find purpose and meaning in their lives than others. The O is for optimism. And a lot of psychological models just talk about the, the benefits of a positive, healthy outlook on life and thinking that the future is going to be good, you know, being able to see the positives in people, um, you know, experiencing positive emotions. And you know, we know that that's highly protective for people. 
Um, is, that, is that, yeah, the, I, I couldn't help but think, um, I, I've known some op, optimistic people, you know, they, they see the good in everything. Right. And they're kind of labeled as, you know, delusional people. You know, how can anyone be so positive? You yeah. know, you see it on TV every so often as well with people. So how do you distinguish optimism uh, versus someone who's just maybe in denial of something? Right. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think that um, some of the thinking and personality looks at three kinds of characteristics. Um, it, what we talk about is normal personality traits. Uh, so those are characteristics that differentiate among the population of interest. Um, personality disorders, where, you know, it's be like schizophrenia or you know, something like that. Um, and then what they some people call subclinical personality traits, which are kind of maladaptive, but don't quite reach to the level of having a personality disorder. Um, so, for example, um, you know, you could make a distinction between someone who's just got a healthy, natural level of optimism, um, but in a realistic sense, versus somebody who might have a, you know, subclinical kind of, you know, potentially maladaptive op optimistic outlook. And, you know, mm -hmm. so here, I think we're mostly talking about people that fall into that normal range. But I think with any of these qualities that we study, there's a recognition that, you know, too much can be a bad thing, right? So, you know, another example is the W in this model is I, I used it as willpower. Um, one of the traits that people study there is called conscientiousness, which is a preference for structure and order and, um, you know, being able to follow rules and, and things like that. And we know from a lot of research in, in industrial psychology and in health psychology that more conscientious people tend to do better in life, right? Um, and, but we also know that, you know, if you're too oriented towards structure and order, we start to talk about things like obsessive compulsive traits, mm -hmm. right? And then all the way into a full-blown obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And so I think there's a recognition of a threshold there where we'd say kind of within a normal range of, you know, whether it's optimism or, or willpower or whatever that, um, you know, that those traits are adaptive to a point, but then beyond that point, they could be potentially maladaptive. Um, the science side of it, I think, is that um, the way people study optimism with, you know, their personality questionnaires are just have questions like, you know, I tend to see the positive in things. Um, you know, the scores on those wouldn't really differentiate somebody who's got a normal, healthy level of optimism versus somebody who, you know, is sort of off the charts. And I don't think those measures are really designed to capture the kind of the, the off the charts person, you know, um, like a good, another example, self-esteem, right? That mm -hmm. we know that self-esteem is a good thing. It's critical to human development, but we also know that too much self-esteem is narcissism and leads to all sorts of problems. Yeah. Right? So um, there's, there's always a kind of an area there, a threshold that you cross in, 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 conceptualizing these ideas where, you know, too much of a good thing is usually not good. So that that's what's E. So with E, we talk about emotional stability, um, which is kind of classic and probably the most studied characteristic in, in personality psychology is called either emotional stability or sometimes it's referred to by its opposite, which is neuroticism. Um, so that there's two real key characteristics that I think define this more than any other. Um, 
people who are emotionally stable tend not to be emotionally reactive to events. So that they're the people that are, tend to be calm and cool and collected under pressure versus the people that really have intense reactions. And then the other part of it is people that tend to be um, tend to be prone to negative mood states. And so if you put those two together, that the, the more harmful view is a person who tends to be both emotionally reactive and prone to negative mood states are going to be a person who's going to kind of by definition have more negative, more intense negative reactions to stressors. And then the, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so the last one is the R is resourcefulness, which is basically, I just use this kind of a grab bag label for there's a variety of different traits that refer to people's belief in their own capacity, right? So self-esteem, which sometimes people talk about self-efficacy. Um, there's challenge and the hardiness literature fits in here, but basically an idea that, you know, I feel confident that I can do what I need to do in most situations in my life. And so the point of the power model is that these are just different themes in this literature that different researchers use. And I, I, I like this as a model and teach it to my students just as a way to think about the kind of the broad landscape of personality traits that people study and what are some of the common themes across different models in this literature. Could resourcefulness also incorporate the idea of the uh, the family and friend networks uh, that are out there too. If someone is experiencing something, uh, you know, from a, a negative stressor, that they have a support system in place. You know, they know where they could go um, for assistance. Shall we say, you know, in, instead of uh, freaking out. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. So yeah, I wouldn't put it as part of the the power model because I wouldn't conceptualize that as a personality trait. Okay. But certainly, if you think about <clears throat> capacities that support resilience, social support is absolutely crucial. And, you know, we probably have more evidence about that than we do anything else in, in this area about the importance of social support, whether it's your family or at the workplace, right? We know that people that have supportive supervisors do better and, you know, stay longer and work harder and go above and beyond the call and experience better health outcomes. So um, we, we also, there's a construct called perceived organizational support, which is basically to what extent do I feel like my organization cares about me as a person? And we know that people that are higher on that tend to be higher on job satisfaction and productivity and health and well-being and, you know, a whole variety of other beneficial outcomes. So I think it's that kind of support is absolutely critical. I just wouldn't talk about it as part of personality. I think it's, it's another part of the kind of the mix in terms of promoting resilience. Okay. I'm just wondering, um, as you were going through um, the, uh, the 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 purpose, optimism, etc., uh, you said quite a bit that you know you go too far or not enough, and you have different problems. So, is it fair to say uh, a resilience person is kind of stable in in the middle of those areas? Not too much of this, not too much of that, you know, but a, a good mixture, a good balance. Yeah, I think I think certainly that it's you don't want extremes for sure. Yeah, you know, I think what you probably ideally want is a little bit of all of these things, right? And you know, so that um, you want people that can find meaning in their lives, and you know, not to the point where they're kind of inventing reality, but you know, you want you, you want a healthy level, I guess, is what you'd say. 
And I think that's true with all of these, that they're all going to be beneficial. And, and I think they're all related to each other to a degree, right? So that, mm. you know, the people who find it more, have more sense of purpose are probably going to be more optimistic. And, you know, maybe also be a little bit more emotionally stable. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's, I think what we certainly want is balance. I think that you don't want to overcorrect, you know, in, in any of this stuff. But I think that, you know, some kind of, I'd say, stable to high level of each one would be good without going to the extremes. You mentioned uh, something near the end there, uh, perceptual effects. What did you mean by that? Because that, that term kind of caught my attention, like, oh, what's that? Um, just now I saw that? Yeah, you were talking about perceptions and uh, perceptual effects, and you were talking about organization there, and I just kind of... Oh, oh, sorry. sorry. Um, You mean the perceived organizational support stuff? Oh, perceived. Okay, sorry. I I wrote... I can't read my own writing. I wrote perceptual. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah, so that's an idea in industrial psychology that um, is a pretty simple one. It's developed by a guy named Robert Eisenberger, who came up with this notion that um, we have a relationship with our organizations and they call it um, the old researchers call it the personified organization. In other words, we behave toward our organizations as, 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 if, as if they were a person in many ways so that we ascribe intent. You know, Clemson University is treating me well or Clemson University is screwing me over, you know, so it's a relationship that I have is based on my sense of treatment. And Eisenberger proposed this notion of perceived organizational support, which is a sense that people have that their organization values their contributions, cares about their well-being, cares about them as a person. And there's a whole body of evidence now, I think hundreds of studies that show that people that have a stronger sense of perceived organizational support tend to be healthier. They tend to be more willing to stay in the organization and tend to be willing to go above and beyond the call for the organization. They tend to work harder, be more loyal, et cetera. So yeah, that, that's another area of, of this kind of research that um, there, there's a good deal of scientific evidence to support the importance of that idea. Well, let, let's carry the idea of organizations uh, another step further. What can organizations do to help promote resilience uh, amongst themselves, the leadership, their employees, you know, the, the overall organization? What can they do? to to promote yeah so so i'll give you an answer focusing on people right rather than kind of the organization level but um you know i mean we think about i think the whole system of talent management right it can be kind of baked into that so that when we select you know when we use hiring systems you know resilience may be a part of that where it's whether it's personality testing or you know some other method that you have to try to figure out how a person is going to be able to deal with the the stressors of a position. Um, It's in the onboarding process. There may be training programs that lead people to, you know, cope with, to to be prepared to cope with the stressors of the experience. You know, Um, I I was in the the Marine Corps when I was 17 and, you know, a lot of Marine Corps boot camp, I think is about kind of simulating the conditions that they expected you to experience out in the field. So it's, it's training you to prepare you for, those kinds of exposures. Um, you know, reward systems is maybe tricky. That's maybe a separate conversation, but I think certainly when we talk about leadership, you know, we were talking offline that, you know, I think 
the first thing for many leaders, I think, is, you know, are they resilient themselves? You know, mm-hmm. are they good role models of what they want their employees to be? You know, so that we see many times that leaders will talk about how much they care about employee health and well-being, but they're working, you know, 18-hour days and ignoring their family and, you know, doing all sorts of other things that don't portray that model. Or they're rewarding people that engage in the unhealthy behavior themselves, right? So I think it's just kind of part of it is, I think, aligning your reward system so that you're not saying we care about health and well-being on the other hand, one hand and then rewarding stuff that's unhealthy on the other hand. And so I think that alignment is there. I think also, um, you know, with industrial psychology, one of the things that many people in my field would do would be to participate in employee engagement surveys and so that regular regularly monitor how the workforce is doing to see if they have problems in a particular area and then you know try to identify interventions where they can. So I think there's just really at each phase of that kind of talent management cycle, uh, there's you know occupational health and resilience issues can come into play. And you know we also wrote about in the chapter um, a little bit about this kind of dark side of resilience. Um, at least it's, that's in the article I wrote about. Um, Amy Adler, who's a military researcher, has, has written some, I think, really cool stuff on this, where she points out that there's some potential traps of trying to be an organization that focuses on resilience. Um, one thing she talks about is that if you have a high focus on resilience, that can stigmatize the acknowledgement of mental health problems. And so mm-hmm. an example beyond the military is um, there's Kevin Love, who is a basketball player, uh, currently plays for Cleveland. And he came out a few years ago talking about his panic attacks. And it was a big breakthrough because there's such a culture in professional sports of being unwilling to admit when you have a mental health problem, right? And so that it was a big breakthrough for him to say, look, yeah, I have these problems and other people do too, and we've got to help them get help with And there's so, always such a big push, you know, if you're someone on that level, oh, well, then you must have good mental health. Right. And or that you just if you got a problem, you just shut up and deal with it. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, and I think it's certainly, you know, we've got our NFL football playoffs now and there's players are hurt and they're saying you know, they're going to be there on Sunday no matter what happens and no matter what happens to them in the future. You know, um, so Adler writes about that, that, but the idea that an overemphasis on resilience can potentially be stigmatizing for people who have problems, I think, is a as an issue in terms of the dark side where people may be unwilling to acknowledge when they have a mental health problem. And, you know, I think certainly what you want to do with that notion of perceived organizational support is promote resilience in part by letting people know when you've got a concern, it's okay to come to me or to go to your employee assistance program or whomever and try to get the help that you need and we'll be there to support you. And, you know, that, I think when employees believe that, it's going to be, you know, the, the the benefits to organizations are going to be tremendous in terms of, you know, developing this kind of idea of a resilient culture. So that that got me thinking that resilience isn't just responding to a stressor, it's also identifying um, that there is a stressor or acknowledging that there is one. Yeah, sure. If you think about the stress response process, we talk about it. You know, the first step is that there's a stimulus, right? That something happens and then you need to figure out, you know, is this relevant to me and do I need to worry about it? You know, it's kind of one of the standard models. And then can I cope with it? You know, and that it becomes harmful when people say this is relevant to me. I've got to deal with it. And maybe I don't feel like I have the resources I need to be able to cope with it. That's when stressors start to become harmful. But and so that 
you know, resilience comes into play there by um, shape, in part by shaping what we see as stressors, number one. So when I talked about that idea of sense of purpose, right, that mm. or the idea of resourcefulness, that both of those speak to, you know, something that one person might see as a, you know, one of my students might see their first test coming up in a couple of weeks as a horrible pain in the butt that they have to go and prepare for. Another one might see it as an individual challenge. That's an interesting way to demonstrate their knowledge, right? And so that it's the same event, depending on their the typical way that they tend to interpret that, they may experience a health consequence or they may, you know, have an opportunity to perform really well. So it's, you know, I think it, it's, you know, the personality traits become the filter in part through which we interpret those events in the world. And then also kind of how we respond to them. Mm-hmm. Well, believe it or not, we only have four minutes left. Right. Um, could you take three minutes and kind of give us a uh, any final thoughts or some things that maybe we didn't touch on here? Because you did touch on so much in these two articles here, and I'm, I'm sure we have barely scratched the surface. Yeah, so I mentioned I always like to get a plug-in from my field of occupational health psychology. And we have a professional organization called the Society for Occupational Health Psychology, which is really more for academic researchers. But I would encourage anybody that's interested in this area to check out uh, what's called the Total Worker Health Movement. And that's a movement started by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health to promote uh, worker safety, health, and well-being in, in terms of integrated strategies and so that businesses are involved in that total worker health movement. Um, and they have lots of resources in their own professional organization now. And I think the other big point is really within my field, you know, to keep in mind that most of our talk today is talking about personality. And, you know, those are characteristics that people bring with them to organizations and maybe the organization helps them develop to a degree. But they're the part of people that doesn't change that much. And I, you know, in our field, I think we also have a strong value system around kind of prioritizing the work environment. You know, that in, a, in where there's problems at work that are associated with health, I think the first question we ask is, what can we change in the work environment to be able to, you know, lessen this health problem? We don't ask the question first you know, which of our workers are going to be able to deal with the awful conditions that we created for them. So, you know, I think that our, our value system is really all about change the work environment first. And then, you know, hopefully you promote resilience along the way. But if you get both of those uh, in kind of a comprehensive approach, that's kind of the optimal approach to promoting worker safety, health and well-being. Sticking on the individual level, I just want to ask one one final question. Do you have any tips for someone out there who wants to make a change, you know, to develop some of these uh, characteristics that we talked about earlier on. Do you have any tips on how they might go about doing that, you know, without having to put themselves in some sort of a stressful situation to try and, you know, make a change, but any, right. any tips that they, they may uh, be able to start looking at something different or go someplace, you know, to, to help them move forward. Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about this with our kids last night, with um, my son in particular, that I think there is a notion of being willing to put yourself in situations that are at least a little bit uncomfortable and recognizing the value of that. You know, that I think some people would think of resilience as kind of like a muscle that you develop over time and, and you develop it by using it, right? Um, you know, you, you don't become resilient by never facing stress. 
And so that that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not saying, you know, sign up for the military, go and fight in the Middle East and then you'll be resilient. But I think you can find things in your life that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable for you and start to challenge you. You know, maybe that's having a difficult conversation with someone that you might want to avoid or putting yourself in a public speaking role or taking on a task that you don't feel 100% confident in your ability to do it, but maybe you feel 90%, right? I think those are the ways in our daily life that we kind of build up these kind of qualities that lead us to become more resilient. And I think that, you know, those are the kinds of things that you can do on a daily basis to just make yourself a little bit uncomfortable. And then I think you'll grow as a person as a result. I like what you mentioned there about muscle memory in the business continuity, disaster recovery realms where we're testing and exercising plans. Um, We're always talking about, you know, utilizing um, people and uh, in all these different situations so that they can get that muscle memory going and they get familiar with things and they are putting themselves in situations that they normally wouldn't be, even though we're simulating a disaster, but it gets people comfortable. It moves them, you know, forward and, and stimulates, you know, their, their thought processes and how they respond and things like that. So we, we use that term quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about playing guitar beforehand or playing piano and the keyboard. And, you know, I think a lot of that is like you practice the stuff to the point where you don't have to think about it when you're doing it. And then you can improvise in the moment if you need to, you know, Um, but it's, you know, I think having that good foundation really goes a long ways toward, you know, promoting resilience, both for individuals and for organizations. Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of the show. Dr. Sinclair, thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. I, I hope a lot of people uh, listen to this because it was a nice, different uh, take on resilience, the the individual, which is uh, a lot of what I've been talking about lately is stop worrying about plans and processes. Look at the individual. So I'm really glad you could join us today. Okay, great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, I encourage people to check out the book. And if anybody has any follow-up questions, they can just shoot me an email at R-S-I-N-C-L-A at Clemson.edu and I was happy to chat. So thank you again. Well, thank you. And that book, once again, uh, Managing for Resilience. And uh, it's the second essay in there. So uh, you don't have to go far uh, to to find it. It's a great paper. Um, Thank you once again for joining us and everyone watching and listening. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected please tune in for another edition featuring your host alex bullock next thursday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel we'll see you here next week